several weeks ago, we were sitting around the kitchen table, and uh, we were doing our uh, family worship, and I can't remember exactly, to be honest with you, I can't exactly remember the text we were looking at or, or, or what scripture we had read. I, what I do remember is, um, is I asked a question. I said, who is in control of all things? And Kendall was sitting to my left, and she was eating, and she had been kind of sitting there, you know, through it all, and we'd been talking and stuff. Well, when it came to that question, I said, who's in control of all things, guys? She goes, I am! <laughs> and, and we kind of looked at her, and she said, I'm in control! And uh, we did what you just did. <laughs> we laughed, and, and I stand here this morning to assure you that Kendall is not in control of all things, because if she were, it would be a, a world of trouble for us. The, the reality is, is that many people live confident in their own ability. You see, we're, we're, we're in trouble, somewhat of trouble, I think, from the self-esteem movement of the past few decades that has left us uh, with, with this confidence in our own abilities that, hey, we can, we can do everything on our own. I don't really need anybody else. I can do it. And we just keep shoveling that in. You can do anything you want to. You can do anything you want to. You can do anything you want to. And I, I heard somebody say, one time, I don't even think it was a, a Christian speaker, it was just maybe somebody on Sports Center, I don't know. Uh, but they said, that's a lie. Because Shaquille O'Neal could never be a horse jockey. Right? We can't be anything that we want to. We can't do everything ourselves. But, but we have this confidence in our own abilities that, that Satan's really baited us with. He's baited us, hey, you can be in control. You can be in control of everything. You, you just don't worry about it. You're in control and you can have that confidence, and then, he, and then he hooks us to what? To put confidence in our flesh, to, to put confidence in, in who we are instead of who God is. And so that's what we're going to deal with this morning, is we're going to deal with this issue of misplaced confidence. The, the, question, the question I would ask you is this, is, is if your confidence is in the flesh, then what will you do when you're absent from the flesh? If your confidence is in the flesh, what will you do when you're absent from the flesh? There's a, a song by Isaac Watts that, called Absent from the Flesh, and, and it's really a, a song of praise. That he says, oh, absent from flesh, oh, blissful thought. The reality is, is every one of us, if we are putting our confidence in the flesh, in who we are and what we can do and what we control, then when we are absent from the flesh, it is not a blissful thought. However, if our confidence is in Christ, then it is a blissful thought to be absent from flesh, because we know that to be absent from flesh is to be present with Christ. So the problem that we deal with this morning is just what the hymn writer says. We're prone to wonder. So some sitting in here today, you're, you're not believers, you're not Christians, you're not following Christ, and right now, all of your confidence is in yourself. It is in the flesh. If you're not a follower of Christ, then that means you're placing your confidence in the flesh. You may not have ever worded it that way. You may not have a, a name tag that says, Hello, I am the one placing my confidence in the flesh. You may not have t-shirts that say that on the back to let everybody know, but that's where your confidence is. And so you need to consider, what is the end of that? If you place your confidence in the flesh, what will be the end of it? But believers, you're just like me. Right? You're, you're prone to wonder from the grace of God. You're prone to wonder from leaning on God, from trusting in Him and placing all confidence in Him, aren't you? You're, you're prone to start 
putting a little confidence in what you can do. I mean, do you, do you think that standing here in this pulpit is without temptation for me and Bill and, and Scott and any other preacher that stands here or any other pulpit around the world right now? Do, do you think it's without temptation that we stand here and we preach just in our own ability, in our own knowledge? Sure it is. It's a temptation that we would stand here and just solely preach according to the confidence we have in what we've learned in seminary or what we've read or what we've studied or what so-and-so said and taught us and never come before Christ and say, I need you to enable me to effectively proclaim your word. So we are barraged by that temptation everywhere. The temptation to place confidence in anything or anyone outside of Christ. Turn your Bibles this morning to Philippians 3. We're going to be dealing with Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. While you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on and where we are in Scripture. The city of Philippi was a Macedonian city, and it was the most important city in Macedonia at the time. It was located along a, a, a pathway called the Ignatian Way, and this would be equivalent to somewhat of a, a highway in, in New Testament times. And so it made Philippi a very important city, a very strategic city, a, a city of great commerce. It was a Roman colony. It was a very important and prominent place in New Testament times. And so on Paul's second missionary journey, he took Silas and they journeyed and came to Philippi. When they came to Philippi, they came upon a, a lady named Lydia, a dealer of purple fabrics. And, and as Scripture tells us in Acts 16, if you want to look at that sometime, in Acts 16, we learn that Lydia um, confesses Christ. She places her trust and her faith in Christ, her confidence in Christ. And going on from there, later on as they're in the city, they also uh, become imprisoned. They get thrown in jail. And while they're in jail, the scriptures say that they spent time praying and singing and rejoicing in God. And the other prisoners listened to them, listened to what was going on. Overnight, an earthquake came. And it broke open all the doors of the prison. And in the morning, when the jailer woke up and he saw that all the doors had busted open... He decided that his best option was to kill himself because he knew the punishment if the prisoners escaped on his watch was death anyway. And so as he was about to, to kill himself, Paul says, hey, 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 whoa, 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 don't do it, don't do it, we're here. Nobody's left. And this surely astounded the, the jailer. He, he was amazed, and he, his response is, after seeing them and seeing their testimony, he surely had heard their teaching, he had seen them pray, and he had seen them rejoicing. His response is, what should I do to be saved? What should I do to be saved? And Paul looked at him and said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and all of your household, and you will be saved. And so we have the start of the church at Philippi. Paul, as his strategy was, he moved on to another city, but Philippi held a very dear place in his heart, a, a place that, that, that was very special to him as a church that he started. And he certainly corresponded back and forth with Philippi. Until now, the letter that we have deals with the issue of finding out that the church was under attack. We don't know exactly what kind of attack they were under, but some type, some type of attack from maybe outsiders, maybe from within as well. But they were exper experiencing opposition, and there was some strife. And Paul finds this out. He's likely writing from prison in Rome. And so he writes, he's definitely in prison, we think it was in Rome, and so he writes this letter to the church that he loves, it's a, a church that he has a, a, a very intimate tie to, 
And he writes to them to, to stand firm in their faith, to remember that they're citizens of heaven before they're citizens of Philippi, to rejoice in all circumstances, to know that his situation as he writes in prison, it's okay, don't worry about, about me, Paul says, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he, he writes, and now in chapter 3 where we come to, he begins dealing with the opposition that the Philippian believers are, are experiencing and, and, and confronting. Listen, we'll start in Philippians verses, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I want to stop there for just a, just a moment. So Paul begins in verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is kind of a transitional statement for Paul. He goes on to deal with new things from this point on in the letter. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's no trouble for me. I want to safeguard you. And so I want to write to you about those who are opposing you. So in verse 2, he begins this. He, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So Paul begins addressing the opposition in a very sharp way. This isn't just, hey, listen, there may be some people that disagree with you. Just kind of deal with them and, and try to go around. Don't, you know, don't, don't worry about it. Just try not to make any noise. No, Paul, Paul sharply deals with them. Because as best we can tell, what he's dealing with here, according to the language, is he's dealing with people known as Judaizers. Judaizers, what they did is they tried to come in, they were Jewish believers, Jewish Christians that would come in, and they would try to impose Jewish customs on Gentile believers. They would say, hey, listen, you're not really saved unless you're circumcised. And you're not really saved unless you do this and do that. And they started imposing all these traditions and customs on the Gentile believers. Now, you can imagine Paul sitting in prison... And he finds out what these guys are doing, right? Because this is the same Paul that in Romans 1.16 wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, right? He doesn't say, hey, it's the power of God to save everyone who does this, that, and this, that, and this, that, and the other, right? He doesn't say that. He says the gospel, the gospel alone, faith in Christ alone, is what has the power to save for the Jew and the Gentile. All who believe, all who trust in Christ, it's the gospel that has the power to save. So, Paul, unashamed of the gospel, does not mince words. He looks at him, he, call, he's, he makes three warnings to beware. Listen to what he says. He says, first, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Now, we have a pretty high view of dogs here, don't we? They're man's best friend, right? Some of you have dogs that sleep in your beds at night. Um, I don't because I don't have a dog, but if I had a dog, it probably would, actually. Right, But we love dogs. We take them everywhere. Some of you spend more, dog, more money on your dog's haircut than I do on my haircut. Right? We love dogs. Well, in, in the time that Paul's writing this, this isn't the case. Dogs, dogs were kind of the low life for, for, both, for both Jews and Greeks. They were detestable. The Greeks thought they were just, man, they looked at dogs, really detestable dogs. Jews saw them as unclean. They were unclean. So, so Paul looks at the false teachers these Judaizers that are saying, hey, hey, they're coming in with all these religious things. And Paul says, man, they are unclean and detestable. They're dogs, filthy dogs. Beware of them. 
The second thing he says, beware of the evil workers, the workers of evil. So those who have, give off this air of righteousness, Paul says, no, righteous? No way, man. They're, they're working evil. They're actually, they're opposed to the things of God. You need to beware of them. What they're doing is they're working evil. They are not doing the things of God. They are not glorifying God. They are not leading you to grace. They are not leading you to put confidence in Christ. They are leading you towards evil. So beware of the evil workers. And then finally he says, beware of the false circumcision. Beware of the false circumcision. Those who who thought so highly of of the physical circumcision as the mark of the covenant, those who, who lifted it up on such a pedestal and said, hey, listen, you're not really saved unless you're circumcised. Once you're circumcised, then you can be a follower of God. So, so those, Paul says, listen, they may say that, but let me tell you, they are the false circumcision. They are not the true circumcision. They do not know what they're talking about. They are deceiving you, and they are leading you astray. Paul actually uses a, a kind of a play on words here in, in the Greek that, that where you'll, you'll hear the, the similarity the false circumcision is katatome, right? The true circumcision that he's going to read and that we're going to talk about in just a second in 3.3 is paratome. He's using a play on words, and katatome actually means to mutilate. So some of your scriptures, or some of your translations say that those that mutilate themselves. And he's saying, listen, man, these Judaizers who claim that, they're not the true circumcision. They're mutilating themselves. They're mutilating themselves. Paul is not mincing words. He's coming after them, and he's saying they are not people of God. They are not followers of God. They are not exalting God. And I think we have something to learn from Paul here. I think we need to to realize that we cannot be afraid to call a spade a spade. I think in our our culture, we're so scared of hurting somebody's feelings that sometimes if somebody says, hey, this person, don't read their books or don't follow them or don't listen to their sermons because they're a false teacher, You, did you call them a false teacher? Yeah, we call them a false teacher. If they're not preaching the gospel, then don't listen to them. If they're preaching some other gospel, then they should be able to stomach the fact that somebody's going to say, hey, you're proclaiming a false gospel, and you're a false teacher, you're a heretic. Paul wasted no time. Paul didn't shy away from calling a spade a spade. Paul said, listen, you need to beware, because what was at stake was too important. Do you realize that the thing, the teaching that you subject yourself to is of utmost importance? There's too much writing on it. You can't just go, oh, here's a nice Christian book that makes me feel good. Wow, that's great. Let me let my kid read it. Man, that's going to cause so much trouble. We can't do that. We have to make sure what we are subjecting ourselves to is solid, doctrinal, God-honoring, biblically faithful teaching from the Scriptures. We have to be careful about that. If it's not, then warn people about it. Warn them. So in verse 3, Paul makes a distinction. He makes a distinction. He says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he says, this is who they are. Now this is who we are. Some of you guys give me a hard time. You say, listen, you, you, you follow that fake blue, the faded blue. We're, we're true blue, right? That's what you guys tell me all the time. We're true blue. You're making a distinction. Paul's saying the same thing. Listen, that's a false circumcision. That's not real. This is the true circumcision. This is who the people of God really are. He says we are the circumcision. 
We are. And he describes, so this is what the identity of the God follower is. Listen, he, he describes three things. First, he says that, that the true circumcision, the true followers of God, worship in the Spirit of God. They worship in the Spirit of God. We are God worshipers. John 4, 24, you remember that from our study in John, perhaps, where, where Jesus said that, that there will come a day when God looks for, for those who worship in what? In spirit and in truth. Spirit and in, tr- in truth. God's people worship God. We worship God. The second identity of the true circumcision is that they glory in Christ Jesus. They glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in is to, to take pride in, to find our identity in Christ. That's where our identity is found. He is our goal and our prize, our pride and our joy, the theme of our song. So that we can rightfully sing blessed assurance, right? This is my story, this is my song, doing what? Praising my Savior all the day long, right? That, that we rejoice and we exalt in our Savior. That we glory in Christ. And finally, he says, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Our glory is not in the flesh. Our hope is not in the flesh. We put our confidence in Christ. The scripture that Scott read earlier from Romans 4, Paul is dealing with this. He's dealing with this issue of of those who would would seek to put confidence in the flesh, who would seek to put confidence in in, in works of the flesh and deeds. And he says he gives Abraham as a supreme example he goes through and he, he spent the first three chapters of Romans talking about salvation and justification through, by faith alone. And he comes down to Romans 4 and he says, listen, here, here is the case in point. Here is the example, is Abraham. He did not, he, he was not reckoned as righteous because of his works. It was his faith that reckoned him as righteous. His righteousness came through faith. It was not through physical circumcision. It was not. And so Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, here's, here's what I want to give you this morning. If you're taking notes, I want to give you five, way, five ways or five marks that, that you would you could look at and go, okay, I'm placing my confidence in the flesh. Is it, what it is, is, is it's really a, an issue of misplacing our confidence in something that is not worthy of placing confidence in. So what does it look like to misplace your confidence in the flesh? Here's five things. First, it's misplaced works. It happens when we misplace our works. That, that simply means that, that we base our standing before God in things like church attendance or tithing or going on a trip or things we say or, or do for other people instead of basing it in the finished work of Christ. So we misplace our works. We, we put the works in front of salvation to merit salvation instead of after salvation as evidence of salvation. So we misplace them. We put them in the wrong place. So number one, misplaced works. Number two, what does it look like to put your confidence in the flesh? Is misplaced identity. Misplaced identity. This happens when we, we derive our identity out of the sport we play or, or the children we're raising. Oh, look at my kids. There's my identity. That's who I am. Or the job we have or the money we possess, the things we own. That's our identity. That's what we have. That's, that, that's who we are. And we place our identity in that instead of our identity in Christ. So misplaced identity is the second, second mark. The third 
the third mark of what it looks like to put your confidence in the flesh. I would say is misplaced security. Misplaced security. That, that, that you base what you do for God on how much funds you have in the bank. Oh, I, I, will, I will serve God if I have enough money. And God's saying, I want you to serve me. You go, and I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide. You, you just go, or, or maybe we, 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 bla- we base our security in, in, in our insurance and how we can, our backup plan. Or, or maybe we, we base our security just in our knowledge. I'll share the gospel if I know enough. And so that gives me security to really step out and tell someone about Christ. But guess what? You're not going to know everything. You can't. There's no one in this room who knows everything. We, there's going to be a question that we're all asked that we don't know. We need to base our security, our confidence in Christ. That he will equip us and use us and give us the words to say as we share the gospel. Number four, confidence in the flesh is misplaced trust. It's misplaced trust. This is simply when you do what Kendall did. And you may not scream it from a rooftop or yell it across the table or even whisper it to somebody. But in your mind and in your heart, you're saying, I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in control. It's misplaced trust. You trust your own ability to control your life. Instead of trusting the sovereign God of all creation. Misplaced trust. Number five, it would be misplaced values. Misplaced values. Confidence in the flesh is very evident when we value other things more than we value Christ. When we treasure up in our hearts things that moth and rust will destroy instead of things that are eternal in nature. We treasure things above Christ. And we seek to serve two masters. And so we see this when the things we treasure hinder us from doing the, God, the things that God calls us to do. That we so love the stuff that we're unwilling to leave it when God calls us. I, I think that's one of the greatest hindrances and challenges to the church in the United States. The stuff, the things we treasure. Oh, that we would just treasure Christ above all things and put all of our confidence in Him. The, the, the contra, the, the opposition to all these things, the, the, is listen, listen, as Gerald Hawthorne said, Christians are the circumcision precisely because they take no pride in what they might do by themselves to earn God's favor, but only in what God in His favor has already done for them in Christ Jesus. We are followers of God because we put our confidence in God. Our confidence is not in the flesh. The biblical precedent for the people of God is that that everything we do is based in the work of Christ. We trust Him and we lean on Him, we depend on Him. All that we are is based in Christ. Our confidence and our hope is in Christ alone. So the question at this point is, where does your confidence lie? Where does it lie? Paul goes on to give us his example, starting in verse 4. 
He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Found blameless. Paul says, listen, if anybody has the right to put confidence in the flesh, it's me. Look, look at what I have. He says, man, I have the ultimate Hebrew pedigree. I have the ultimate pedigree. You can't top this. I was circumcised eight days. So all the traditions and requirements were upheld. I'm part of the, the nation of Israel. I'm God's chosen race. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Man, I bleed Hebrew blood. That's who I am. But guess what? I wasn't content there. I became a Pharisee. That, that means he strictly adhered to the law. He knew it. He memorized. He rose above his contemporaries. And not only that, he, he wasn't a, a Pharisee that sat back disgusted at what was going on around him, at these little Christians walking around. No, he was zealously persecuting the church. He wasn't just opinionated about Christians. They suffered at his hands. He had the pedigree of all pedigrees. But friends, listen. It's easy for us to sit and chuckle at that, isn't it? It's easy for us to go, <laughs> he didn't realize what he... <laughs> no way. You know, we, we can sit back and go, man, he was trusting that. But I, I don't think it's too far off from where our temptations lie as well. We're, we're tempted with a very similar thing. Listen, many, many of us in this room have, have risen from depths of poverty to pursue the American dream. And we have the, we're just living the American dream. So much so that some of you have half of a child sitting in your seat beside you. Just so that you can be the average family in America. We are living the American dream. Our technological, intellectual, medical savvy has ascended to such great heights that we completely fail to see God's providence, guidance, and miracles in everyday life. We, we miss it. So, so that instead, if, if a doctor can't heal it or if a book can't give us five steps to fix it, then we are hurled into an utter state of despair. Oh, woe is me. What am I going to do? I, my confidence is in my doctor. My confidence was in this self-help book. My confidence was in, was in this and what I know and, 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 and technology and, and none of that's working. Oh, heaven's sake, what, what, what is left? What's left is where you should have started. The sovereign, awesome, holy God of all creation. We go and we travel to other countries other areas and we look at people who do things differently maybe they worship differently and and we kind of look down and chuckle <laughs> you see what they do because hey man our church has it all figured out i mean some of us put confidence in the order of worship i mean my goodness what if we change the order of worship what would happen I mean, surely every church in, in Freddie's country of Peru must use the same order of worship as we do. And they probably have the same setup. I mean, if they don't, they, I mean, they're just probably not where we are. Not as spiritual as us. Put confidence in the wrong things. Our confidence is in Christ. 
I think Paul might even look at some of us and go, you Americanizers. You're going to go and try to turn the Peruvian or the, the Filipino church into an American church. I want it to be a biblical New Testament church. And it's going to look different. It's going to look different. We're not here to promote the way we do it. We're here to promote the gospel. Our confidence in the gospel, our confidence is in Christ. Paul goes on in verse 7 through 11, and we really get a picture of his confidence. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul writes in these four verses is the antithesis of confidence in the flesh. It's confidence in Christ. In verse 7, we see a significant shift in Paul's mindset. He says, but, but whatever things were gained, I've counted as loss. The spreadsheet of Paul's life is radically different. The things that, that would be gains, typically, all the pedigree, the, the things that he would say, hey, this is, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am, that's loss for Paul. And he says, no, what is gain is Christ, and it outweighs everything else in my life. Everything else in my life. Verse 8, we see the continuing resolve of Paul. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's a, that's a, it's in the present. I continue to count all things. So, so the, the decision when Paul says, I am following Christ, when he confesses Christ, when he repents and turns to Christ and, and trusts him, that is the decision made in, in a moment of time there on the Damascus Road. He follows Christ. God reveals himself to him. He opens his eyes, blinds him, opens his eyes, right? And Paul follows Christ. But listen, when we make the decision to deny ourselves and to follow Christ, that decision is followed by daily opportunities, daily decisions to either trust Christ, to count all things as lost, or to trust ourselves. We, we are daily met with a decision as believers to deny ourselves and follow Christ or to put confidence in our flesh and deny Christ. Paul says, I continue to count all things as loss. All things, more than that. But what is it? What, what does Paul see? What, what's in Paul's mind that is so great that he would count all things as loss. Why, why does he have that perspective? Is it, is it in view of the surpassing value of my theological position? Is it in view of the surpassing value of experiencing a really good trip to Columbus? Is, is it in view of the surpassing value of liking the music that was sung at church today? Is it in view of the surpassing value of just living a really comfortable and safe life? Man, my house is great, my yard's pretty, my dogs are nice. 
Is it in view of the surpassing value of life going just as I planned? Man, this is the good life. No. What, what does Paul have in view? He says in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Listen, we are experts at overcomplicating Christianity. We're experts at overcomplicating it. God, God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Matthew 22. The, the lawyer comes and he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, just love me. Love me with all that you are. Paul says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of just knowing my Lord. Just knowing him. I, I want to I be near him. I want to experience him. I want to know his grace. My confidence in Christ. My confidence in his salvation and his grace. I worship him. I love him. I live to know him more every day. Don't overcomplicate what it looks like to follow Christ. Just love him. Cultivate a heart that loves him. What do you treasure? What do I treasure? Do I treasure Christ above all things? Do I love him more than I love my wife and my kids? Do I love him more than I love pastoring? What do we treasure? Love Christ above all else. Look at verse 9. Paul says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The same thing he wrote in Romans 3, 21 and 22. He said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul's confidence is not in the flesh. Paul's confidence is in his Savior. Paul's confidence is in the fact that, that he knows that on the cross, God made him to be him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that what? That we might become the righteousness of God. He knows that everything he had and everything he did and all that he was could not accomplish the righteousness of God, that all that could accomplish the righteousness of God was the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And that's where Paul's confidence was. Where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? If you are not a believer and you're sitting in here today, you know or you need to know that your confidence, you're basing your confidence in who you are. You're basing your confidence in, in, in your job or, or in your talents or, or what other, people's, other, other people think of you or, or how well you do on a ball field or, or whatever, fill in the blank. You're basing your confidence on something other than Christ. You're basing your confidence on how many times you walk through the door or how many times you say the right thing to one of the pastors or, or that you make your Sunday school teacher laugh. Man, that's vain. That is worthless. That's going to leave you extremely disappointed. Because when you're absent from the flesh, your confidence better be found in Christ. That's the only place that it can lie. God sent His only Son 
to live a righteous and a perfect and a holy life, something that none of us could do. And he died a death that all of us deserved. And by his power, he rose from the grave, victorious over death, fully paying every, every cost of sin, accomplishing redemption. And he has promised that if you repent and trust Christ, if you call on the name of Christ, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. There's nothing to add on it. No works you add on, no identity marks, name tags, you have to be a Hebrew of Hebrews or anything like that. You place your faith in Christ. Real quick, five questions to ask yourself to close. Five questions to ask yourself that I think will keep us in check. Are we putting our confidence in Christ? Number one, bottom line, who or what am I trusting for salvation? Who or what am I trusting for salvation? Do you sing with Augustus Top Lady, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling? Who are you trusting for salvation? Question number two. Who's in control of my life? Who's living? Who am I living as though is in control of my life? Maybe you should word it that way. Am I living as though I'm in control? Or am I living as though Christ is in control? When I live as though I'm in control, then, man, fear grips me. Because guess what? I'm not in control very much. You, you realize, I mean, control issues. If you have control issues, man... You're in trouble every time you get on an airplane. You're completely out of control. Do we trust in Christ? Do we trust in God to be in control of all things? Number three, from where, where am I deriving my identity? Where am I deriving my identity? If you're placing your confidence in Christ, then your identity is that you're a follower of Christ. So before I'm a student, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a husband, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a dad, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a friend, I'm a Christian. My confidence and my identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. Where are you placing or driving your identity from? Number four, in what or in whom do you find security? In what or in whom do you find security? Are you finding security in the money that you have saved up, or you find security in your insurance plan? Are you, are you finding security in the fact that, hey, I'll go there if everything's safe, if it's all safe? Or do you find security in the fact that God rules over all things and is the Lord of all creation? Where is your security? And finally, who or what does my heart treasure? What do I treasure? Think about this. When you're just sitting around, driving down the road, what does your mind most consistently jump to? Where does it most consistently jump? What's most consistently on your mind? I would say that whatever that is, that you really need to examine if you're treasuring that above Christ, if it's not Christ. What do we treasure above all things? 
What is your, what is your confidence going to be when you stand before God? Jeff and the worship team are going to come up. And as they do, I, I want you to think about what Paul said in 3.3. He said, we are the true circumcision, the, the true believers, followers of God, the ones who worship Him, who glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. When you stand before God, when I stand before God, is that my testimony? Am I going to look at Him and say, I put no confidence in my flesh. All my confidence is in Christ and Christ alone and the finished work of Christ on the cross. I worship Him and I glory in Him. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. Let's pray.